Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 114 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today, we are speaking with Lincoln Stoller. He is a climber, mountaineer, soar plane pilot, physicist, author, therapist, and he also works with the American Alpine Club's Climbers Grief Fund. His climbing career spans the 70s and 80s, and he has climbed with greats such as Fred Becky. After you listen to this episode of this podcast, I highly recommend that you go listen to the episode of the Enormocast from last year, August 2023, in which Chris Kalous spoke with Lincoln for nearly two hours, often about his history in climbing, his experiences in climbing, his experience climbing with many recognized names in climbing history. It will be linked to in our show notes, so after you listen to this episode, go check out that episode of the Enormocast. If you're not familiar, it is the original and, in my opinion, still the best climbing podcast. On this show, the Go Get Outside podcast that you are tuned into right now, we will talk a bit about Lincoln's climbing history. But since so much of it was already covered by the Enormocast, we kind of go in a very different direction. So our episode focuses a lot on those things that interest Lincoln at this point in his life, which is the psychology of climbers, trying to understand the world that we live in and the society that we live in. But then also dealing with grief and relationships and all of that wrapped up in how it links back into climbing and the outdoors. And of course, we take some time to talk about his work with the AAC's Climbers Grief Fund. This is the first remotely recorded episode of this season. And after my three-year break, I have to say remote recording tools have improved drastically. So hopefully all of you listening will barely even notice that this was recorded across the internet from Los Angeles to British Columbia. And with that, let's go talk to Lincoln Stoll. My name is Lincoln Stoller. I uh, grew up outside of New York, started climbing when I was 13 on road cuts, those uh, strange and dangerous looking things at the entrance to highways. I'm always amused that I went to the Schwangunks and people said, oh, you need a guide. And I thought I needed some guy in lederhosen with, you know, little flowers in his lapel. But they were talking about a guidebook. I had no idea. I learned climbing at the end of the first pitch when I was 150 feet up leading on a gold line and finally realized that these things dangling from my hardware loop would probably have been useful if I had put them in somewhere. I got over my fear of heights instantly. Well, it was desperate for a moment there. Let's get a little a little additional information here. So how old are you at this point that we're talking 13. about? All right. So you're 13 years old. Are you by yourself or did you go with someone who's belaying you? It sounds like you didn't know what to do with your gear. So did you even Not know to do thing. a belay? No. <laughs> well, I, I had gone with a guy who went to Knowles, I think. Yeah, it was Knowles. So he knew how to do a belay. Why I was leading, I'm not sure. But I guess I was enthusiastic. It was the most ignorant 
Well, it was adventurous. You know, what can I say? It sounds like you maybe were going with someone who dropped out of Knowles. Like maybe he showed up for the day that they went over Belaine, but not the day that they went over leading and guiding. I was t- I was too gripped at that point to know, but I learned quickly. <laughs> But you just had a bunch of crap on your harness. That's right. And you and you Shit. basically soloed 150 feet with a rope dangling between your legs, and mm-hmm. uh, and then figured out that uh, you were happy you weren't dead. Yeah, it was one of my many lucky experiences. Like I said, we didn't we didn't know there were roots. We didn't know there were roots. We just said headed up. Man, I'm lucky. Yeah, it's funny. I I talk about this sometimes with some people. I think there is like a certain age where once you reach it, all of that dumb luck is gone. It's Mm -hmm. somewhere in your 20s or 30s where you can do the most asinine crap and you'll survive and you'll be fine. And then you turn 31, 26, whatever it is. And you try to do something similar, you're going to end up in prison or dead or paralyzed. Mm, Shit, maybe true. So I guess 13, you were still Uh, within the threshold. I mean, you know, most of my climbing partners died climbing. Well, they weren't, you know, close climbing partners, but they were people I knew. So they were all, you know, risk takers. I liked risk takers. I I don't think most people have lost all their climbing partners to to, uh, fatal accidents. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think most people have. (laughs) But my closest climbing partners... The ones I related to the most were safer. I just think Fred Becky was one. And uh, my friend Peter, who ended up running Black Diamond, was another. And they were safe people. And what time period are we talking about here? I think it was probably 70 to 82, something like that. So 13 to 26. Early 70s, you're 13. How are you even aware that climbing is an option at this point in your life? I didn't know. I thought climbing, when somebody said climbing, I thought of like a wall. Because I grew up in suburbia, and the only things that were climbable were walls. So I thought a wall. How do you climb a wall? You know, a brick wall? A marble wall? I didn't understand that there were cliffs. I didn't have it in my mindset. So when I went to look at cliffs, I didn't know what they were. There were some cliffs, you know, in New York State, there's some nice cliffs. But I was so upset about family and school that I'd take anything. You know, I'll go anywhere. I stuck my thumb out and get me the fuck out of town here. It, it seemed good at every step, right? You know, it, it looks pretty, pretty friendly. I mean, you know what? We're talking rock climbing. How, how unfriendly can rock climbing be? You know, there are groups milling around and there are paths and places to sit and it's sunny and you're out by yourself and it all seemed good. So, and you know, you learn quickly, you get a guidebook and you learn the grading system and, and most of it's not very hard. Did you just happen to stumble upon people who were climbing? Or yeah, pretty like, much. How did you, okay, so you just one day walking around, you see a bunch of people climbing and then they say, sure, come join us. Well, no, it was the Knowles guy. He went to Knowles, he was a few years okay. older. And so he, you know, had a coil of rope over his shoulder and off we went. Yeah, and you know, you learn quickly. You pick it up, you see these guys wandering around. I remember one funny thing was I thought they were such amateurs because they were climbing in these little tennis-like shoes where I was in big hiking boots. <laughs> you know, I was clueless. But, uh, you know, eventually I got with the program. And then, you know, and it turned into mountaineering pretty quickly. Mountaineering is such a strange thing, though, because it's not nearly as comfortable as rock climbing. It's got a lot of, you know, grueling, sweating approach you know, the problem was, how do you approach when you got to wear stiff-soled boots? They're, they suck for hiking. So, you know, at some point when we were climbing in the Tetons, we would approach in uh, running shoes and then put our climbing boots on to, you know, start the ascent. But in the beginning of my, whatever it was, career, I would do all the whole approach in um, Galibier boots that have wood in their soles to keep them from bending. I always marvel when I take a shower to this day that I have no hair 
on my calves. It was all just torn off from the you know, motion of those boots. So there are people who pay thousands of dollars to remove hair from their body, and it's not permanent. So if you have found the way to permanently remove hair from your oh, calves, shit, man. you might have a side business opportunity here. Oh, no, so grim, though. I remember having blisters that covered the whole back of my feet. I mean, so rock climbing is so, I have such nice memories of rock climbing. 13, you start climbing with this Knowles guy, you transition into mountaineering. You just said, I have fond memories of rock climbing. So does that mean you no longer climb or you got sick of it or you moved on from it? I never got sick of it, but you know, I went to graduate school and there's too much time. You know, once you have a high level of climbing, it's hard to like go down into easier things. Because of the excitement and the purity and the lines and the whole mindset. And you can't really keep it up at a high level unless you continue to train and do it. I went to graduate school in Texas. Well, actually, some of the best climbing was I went to college in Berkeley. So we would go to the valley on the weekends. The people I went to the valley with weren't students. They were climbers. And so we would do fun stuff. We, you know, do the big walls. You have to have a lot of free time. You have to be in shape. You have to go on continuous vacations. You know, most of these people were ski bums in the winter and climbing bums in the summer. And I was a sort of student in the winter and a climbing bum in the summer. And then if you have a family, I think you're at a sort of a juncture because then the whole risk return thing has to be re-evaluated in terms of what you're willing to, who you're going to put at risk. Now it's not just you. So I did all my soloing, you know, before I had a family, before I had any obligation. Then I look back at that stuff and I, I feel pretty ambivalent about that. You know, most soloists are dead. They don't live too long, free soloists. And we again have this sort of pie in the sky vision of whatever it means to be a free soloist. And so I did some free soloing and it's a real head trip. You know, I, I climbed with Charlie Fowler was another avid free soloist. He just didn't care. He just said, I want to get up there fast. I don't want to be encumbered by weighty ropes and slow partners. I guess he was a really good climber. Uh, you know, he did amazing things. I think he soloed the Iger, certainly soloed everything else. But then, you know, he got killed in an avalanche, which is what kills most people, because there are things you simply can't control, like the weather. That's always the argument with soloing, right, is you can only control yourself. You can't control the environment. You can't prepare for the environment to make a decision that kills you. So when you when you were going through your soloing days, what kind of solos are we talking about here and, and how frequent? I only did two free solos. One was about a 15-pitch route. in the. They're both in the Alps. Red Pillar, west face of the Aiguille de Blatier, which is easy to get to. You just get off in the middle station on the Aiguille de Midi cable car. And so when I did that, there were a whole bunch of people on the route. I thought it was 5'7", but now I look at it and they say it's 5'8". And you know, that, that's pretty serious. It's, you know, 15, 15 pitches, pitches of 5'8 is definitely pretty serious. You know, and it's on site, right? I mean, you don't have any right. data for this thing. You mm -hmm. just, you know, route find your way. But I mean, I, for half the route, I was basically following people who got on it before I did. But then the last half, I was ahead of everybody. So what was the draw for you to solo that route? Because you say you've only soloed two routes, so... Well, free solo. You're right. But I had gone to the Alps by myself. It was either uh, climb by myself. So it was don't climb or solo it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the kind of guy to hang around in base camp drinking beer and waiting for friends. And the other one was a, an, an ice climb. They were pretty steep, you know section of 80 degrees for a couple hundred feet. But it's glacier ice, and glacier ice is much, much nicer than water ice. Pretty solid. But still, it's spooky. Definitely spooky, you know, looking down between your front points at a thousand feet of air. I'm glad I did them, sort of. Certainly glad I survived. It's hard to say exactly what it does to your head. It's like a 
it's like a psychedelic trip. You know, it's, it's done something to your head, an experience you'd never had before. I mean, I've had other crazy experiences like crashing airplanes and saving people scuba diving. <laughs> I can imagine the worst things could have run out of air scuba diving. That would have been more traumatic, but I didn't. It was just funny things. I remember mountain biking above Ventura without really the right gear. And I remember going off of a, a lip of something and I was just in the air, you know? It's one of those ridiculous pictures where you're hanging onto the handlebars, your butt has left the seat and your feet have left the pedals. And you're just wondering, what the fuck did I get into here? You know, how am I going <laughs> to land? As long as you're not like too whacked out, it works out. But those moments, you know, they could be traumatic. Well, I had another moment where I fell off Mount Robson, fell about a thousand feet. So I had a lot of time to think about things going down. And, you know, those moments are burned into my mind, but they didn't turn out to be disasters. So I think of them fondly. It is interesting how that happens, right? When you have some sort of what could be a disastrous moment that turns out okay. I think those yeah, are it, fun. It, beco it becomes fun. a fond memory. Yeah. One of the best memories I have when I went to graduate school in Texas, which is pretty flat, Louie would go windsurfing because there are lakes. And I just remember, you know, catching the wind and being thrown into the air, just like tossed like a badminton over the sail, just like a piece of refuse, just thrown into the air and just laughing like crazy, you know. You're not really too worried, you know, you're gonna hit the water, what the hell. Those memories, like, wow, that was that's like the only member I have of, of windsurfing is being thrown <laughs> into the air. Right, yeah, of course. Because the days that everything went well just all bleed together into one thing and then disappear from your memories, yeah. I sort of like to do that, oh, what is it called when you have the kite surfing? That almost attracted me, and I'm in a good place for it. So I'm, I moved to the West Coast because I thought, wow, the East Coast is boring compared to the West Coast. <laughs> so I don't know where you are, but but it is pretty exciting out here. It's it's challenging. I gotta, you got to be careful out here. It's easy to get into trouble in the hills. So we, we kind of just jumped into things right away, and we kind of missed the big summation. I know that you're a varied person with a varied life. So yeah, why don't you give us that summation of who you are? Because I know now you are a physicist and a psychologist also, correct? Well, yeah, that this sort point of in life? fell into my lap. I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. It's a kind of strange figure of speech. But, you know, so <laughs> I worked at it for a long time, but I never felt very good at it. This is actually goes to an interesting conclusion. I worked at it for a long time, the physics. Never mm -hmm. felt very good at it. Other people were more proficient and celebrated as students. I always felt, gee, I don't understand this stuff. And then when you, you know, sort of do a dissertation and you focus, then you sort of understand the area that you're working in, but you still feel like an alien to all the areas that are out of reach around you. Skip forward 40 years, and now I'm getting back to physics and I'm realizing I didn't understand that stuff because no one else did either. And all those textbooks and all those papers I read, they're full of shit. I mean, they answer all the questions that can be answered and you never get a paper published because you're confused. You only get a paper published because you present clarity. So everybody presents clarity, even though by avoiding the real issues, the real unsolvable issues, which is what I was interested in. I'd get to these things where they explain how it works. And I just kind of like skim through that stuff because I didn't care how it works. I want to know why it doesn't work. And they never talk about that. And so now I get back to it and I read it and I say, I start to put it together. And I've, you know, having met these people, and I think that's very important. Maybe that's the most important thing of going to school is to meet these people and to see how weird they are. What branch of physics do you study? Fundamental quantum mechanics. Yeah, you know, the stuff that doesn't make sense, you know? <laughs> the, the thing where no one really knows what's going on at all. They try to, like, <laughs> hook their way into it mathematically or through formalism or through piggybacking on what somebody else said. But you're right. It's just like 
it doesn't really hang together. And it's and it's very difficult to test. It's hard to test. How do you explore what you don't know and feel good about it? This was really sort of an important thing in my whole life is like at some point you realize it's okay not to know because in fact you're more in touch with the juice than when you think you know. I mean, it's like a relationship, you know. This is sort of ex- explains how I got into psychology. You try to control what's going on. And maybe climbers are kind of a type in this regard. They like to know what's going on. They like to control their risk. They like to see high returns. They get involved with potent material. Could be a relationship or could be an expedition or a climb or a route. You have a goal and you have a strategy and you'd like to see it all work out. But, you know, the truth is that the most interesting things don't succumb to a strategy and a goal and a route. I like climbing because it put me in contact with things that were fair. You know, the route is fair. It's not fair when the rock falls on you. That's not fair. But as long as the rock is stable, and this is why, you know, I like rock climbing because it's stable, whereas mountaineering is a little sketchy. You know, you can figure it out. So a lot of climbers, at least in my generation, were scientists and engineers. I always thought it was so amazing that John Gill, who really sort of put bouldering on the map, went at it like Olympic sport which it wasn't at all at the time. This was, must have been, this was before my time even, in the 60s. I mean, or, some some people might argue it still really isn't. I would <laughs> we'll, say we'll, that's we'll right. that for a different conversation. Well, the best climbing experiences aren't gradable. I mean, I'd even think that any athlete would say that, you know, the best skier would say, I don't really ski to make points. I ski because I love skiing. You know, there's something dynamic in it. You, you know, I wrote this book. This is an interesting digression. Somewhere along the line, that was 10 years ago, I started to wonder, what did other people think about all this nonsense? So I went back and interviewed people I considered mentors in science and climbing. I interviewed um, Fred and I interviewed, uh, what's her name, who freed the nose? Oh, Lynn Hill. So Lynn Hill and Fred Becky. Those were the two climbers. And then I interviewed people in science and I interviewed people in music and, well, not music, in fact, but film, writing, politics, education, aeronautics, which is, you know, piloting, whatever you call that, flying airplanes. I found elders because, you know, they have some celebrity. And then I went to find young kids in these fields and asked them, what were they doing? How were they learning? And why were they bothering? What were they getting out of this? So like in the climbing area, I found a girl who had just done an outdoors school, outdoors exploration school, and had toured around the world with her grandparents in a boat to talk about, you know, climbing a tree and looking down in uh, the Philippines on Komodo dragons fighting at the base of the tree. Uh, Interesting experiences. Uh, In LA, I talked to a street artist who'd grown up in New York tagging subway cars and being a graffiti artist and running from the police and hiding in the subways. All kinds of people. And I got really interesting answers about, you know, what their lives were about, what was interesting and how they learned. And mostly it divided it by age. So the young people were full of piss and vinegar and didn't have a clue, but were ready to start whatever. And in fact, had started things. You know, a lot like me, one kid who who wanted to start as a filmmaker said, I just wasn't learning filmmaking in school as a 15 year old. So I decided I had to make my own choice. And I went into the woods and got so upset that I threw up. And then I dropped out of school and became a filmmaker. And that's where he is today. He's a filmmaker. You know, so I mean, young kids can do that. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to like follow the ladder to some. Right, 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 right. But you know, that that rarely works. Who said it? Well, a lot of people actually said it in the project of mine they said don't don't climb other people's ladders because they won't lead you to where you need to go what's the title of this book uh i called it the learning project rites of passage 
you could buy it as a printed book, but I also put it on my website, which will quote as a free. I made it as a sort of an HTML maze. You could wander through it. And was the overall goal of the book to kind of explore why people do the things they do? And yeah, why the life decisions they make. Yeah, yeah and I, I divided it by theme: the biology and film, climbing, and, and some wonderful series. I was able to speak to the student, the teacher, and the sage. You know, all of whom had taught each other or were in the process of learning from each other. This wonderful series of on wrestling. I talked to the sage, who was you know a celebrated coach in wrestling, and everybody thought he was you know God. And he said, you know, I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. I'm just trying to help kids get their shit together. And it's a completely different picture from his celebrity image. So it's interesting. You get these different images. And like the scientists I talked to, who are also some of whom were very famous, said great things about, you know, heading off into the unknown, not knowing what you're doing, how to go forward blindly. And again, we we don't hear this. So I wanted to hear it from these people. I mean, even Lynn Hill, who is a very clear-headed, organized person. And she didn't really say it, but the truth was when she headed up to free the nose, she didn't know what she was getting into. And it took her quite a few times to get through it. And, and then, you know, it's like my own soloing experiences. At some point, you have to stop questioning, especially when you're free soloing. You can't question. You have to be entirely 100% there. Uh, you can worry about it later. And hopefully you won't be put in a position where you have to consider abandoning. I don't know how you down climb if you're free soloing, but I mean, I did my free solos on site. So I hadn't like a lot of free solos. I hadn't done it before. I didn't really know what I was going to get into. I could have gotten off route. Um, I've gotten off route before and I've fallen off, but you can't do that when you're free soloing. But it's an interesting headspace. You have to be totally committed. I mean, if I fell off free soloing, I would dispassionately watch myself on the way down. I wouldn't freak out. I wouldn't scream. I wouldn't flail. I would just say, oh, well, what's next? I mean, that's you have to be in a totally self-possessed headspace. It's interesting. Uh, so I have fallen 50 feet rappelling before. Oh, that's a bad one. And that was my experience. It was not panic. It was exactly what you just said. It was a dispassionate thought of, oh, so this is about to happen. Yeah. And then it was just what seemed like an extremely elongated period of time where I was very logically trying to decide how to mitigate the situation as yeah. much as possible. Yeah, yeah. And I got very lucky the way that everything worked out, the shape of the rock and everything around me, that I was able to essentially somewhat control my fall, slide down a rock face, and then stand up on the ground mm. with with just a tiny bit of a twisted ankle. Yeah, yeah. That was it my... was a bit of it was a bit of dumb luck, but mm-hmm. but yeah, it was there was never that sense of panic or this great terror that I was dying. There was just this feeling that I needed to figure out how to do this right. and deal with the situation. It wouldn't be helpful. You know, right. most, most people who are in dire situations don't have that amount of control. I mean, if a situation assails you unexpectedly, like your car slips off the road or as I was reading in the Washington Post yesterday, you know, an insane shooter comes into your school and, you know, starts to spray bullets everywhere. You can't really have a, a settled frame of mind because your body reasonably goes into such a level of hypervigilance because you don't know where the threat is coming from. Right. But when you do know what the where the threat is coming from, it's a different scene. Then you can say, well, what am I going to do about this situation? And I like to have that latitude to think about things. So climbing, I like to like stop and slow down and think, plan, strategize. And even when I'm falling, 
like you were falling. I move into that head like, okay, let's slow things down here. What can we do? What's the situation? Mm -hmm. What can we mitigate the problem? And I found I didn't do quite as well flying. So I took up flying soar planes, which I would really like to do more. But I learned that the rhythm isn't quite mine, or at least I'm not familiar with it because there you have a limited amount of time always flying soar planes because you're going down, constantly falling. Right. Okay. Yeah. You're talking about these gli- these engineless Glider, gliders, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and you can't you can't really land except at the airport, but you're going down. So it's a weird thing. You have to really plan ahead and you have to be much more regimented than I like to be. So I crashed, <laughs> crashed a lot of times and, and I'm not satisfied with my performance. But also you need money. I didn't have the money, so I had to stop. So when you teased earlier that you've crashed airplanes, you crashed gliders because you didn't land at the airport, is what you're saying. Or or even stupider stuff. (laughs) Take off, one crashed on landing and another crashed in a field. I mean, they're not called crash. They're called emergency landings, but they were fucked up and broke my back and the plane was all smashed. So I call it a crash. It sounds like a crash, but they don't explode. To the general public, yeah, that would be... That would be considered a crash. So it's interesting. I'd like to do it again. But like I say, it's, it's quite an expensive sport. And you can't do it on the weekend. You know, you can't like train in your basement. You have to do you have to be it all week. You're, you're thinking about it. Pilots are famous for living in the hangar. They have a couch and a refrigerator and they, they're there all the time. Sort of like ski bums. All right. So I'm going to make an assessment right now based on the things we've talked about. And you, and you tell me if this is an accurate assessment. We know that you've studied quantum mechanics which are the fundamentals of how everything exists, right? We know that you've studied human psychology. You've written this book that's about why people do the things they do. Mm. You've been a climber. You've crashed a fair number of gliders. You've done a variety of other types of activities. And to me, what this sounds like is you are a person that really wants to understand the world around you and the creatures that inhabit it, and that that is your driving force. Is that is that an accurate assessment? I think so. <laughs> I would contradict you on the physics. Physics doesn't really explain anything. It's just a questioning process. It just you know, it turns into a swamp. But did you? But did you think it was going to answer anything? I thought it was. Yeah, I thought. Right. It, and you know, it's kind of a nice exercise. Like it's there's a zen to it, or at least there could be. And I I started to reflect on what was I missing in these climbing experiences. I was missing the culture that I was walking through, you know, going through Mongolia or going through the Amazon or even going through Canada. And so I started to become more of an explorer. And I lived in the jungle with uh, a group of people who have no contact with technology, did some other sort of out there things with unusual people, not unusual to me, unusual cultures. So, you know, went to Mongolia and met people and had interesting experiences and started to appreciate that you didn't have to put your life at risk in order to see beyond the boundaries of what you knew. You could just live in a fishing village in the Caribbean and it would be very strange. And it was. My father was an architectural photographer and architects are famous for being weird. So, you know, I sort of studied and hung around with them a bit. Even my my, my father's uh, wealthy friends outside of New York, they're just, they're as crazy as, as climbers, as crazy as any climber could be. In fact, I, I think better of climbers because at least they're trying to prevail, whereas rich people are kind of just sitting on their success. And so that sort of led me into psychology. And I turn out to be pretty good at it because mostly I've seen so many strange people and I've been part of people's strange world and I've created my own strange worlds. So, you know, I've had a couple of relationships, which I'm not satisfied with. 
when I talk to people as a whatever I'm called now, psychologist or clinical counselor, you know, I question them. I, I ask them, why are they really doing what they're doing? It's the same old questions. Why did you start what you're doing? What started you along this path? What keeps motivating you? You know, for most of us, our parents are still alive and well in our brains somewhere. Like I say, I've had much better conversations with my parents now that they've been dead for 10 years than I ever had when they were alive. <laughs> they appear in my dreams and they say things that make some sense. Whereas before they just like shut down when I tried to engage them in the processes that, that were important to me. And, you know, as a kid that my parents never knew what I was doing and didn't pretty much care. I mean, they thought they cared, but they had no idea what I was doing. Right. They didn't know. Yeah, I'm going on an expedition to Alaska. I'll see you later. Bye. Have a nice time. <laughs> you know, if we're talking to climbers, it's interesting because I've had some do this podcast with um, what's his name? Calus. Yeah. Chris Calus. Chris yeah. And people really like that. Well, some did. Others didn't. But I've heard from the ones who did because the other ones didn't talk to me. And so now I have a <laughs> bunch of clients who are climbers. And it's really interesting because there is a type who are high performance, very strategic, but willing to consider their weaknesses. You could imagine that they're people who don't want to consider their weaknesses, who don't come to me and don't question them. I was around a lot of those people. It's funny. Fred Becky was a very emotional person and he didn't like those highly intellectual climbers. He had a very emotional texture to his experience. He wanted to appreciate the outdoors. He didn't like people who were just there for the summit or just there to you know get in and get out. So there are lots of people who don't think twice about what they're doing. They're just high performance, high reward, high risk. Maybe you call them obnoxious. It depends on which, <laughs> si which side you're on. Are you on the facilitating side or the impeding side? And I don't know about those people. I didn't like them too much either. Well, the ones who come to me now are the ones who are reflective. I basically tell them, you know, why are you doing this? And we're not even talking about climbing. Most of these people just climb recreationally, but they put their efforts into their business or, you know, whatever it is, their profession, and then their high performance in that regard. And then like, I don't know why climbers don't reflect more. I, I wonder about this. So I basically stopped climbing because I didn't want to keep taking risks. I wanted to move forward. I didn't want to just get better at the same thing. I want to get better at new things. So, you know, when I deal with people who are clients and they're talking about relationships and they're talking about the people around them, it's not nearly as clean as a climbing relationship where, you know, there's just a mountain and it's impartial and it just has a level of difficulty. And maybe there's some uncertainties thrown in about the weather, but there's no one trying to stab you in the back and there's no one acting irrational and hysterical unless your climbing partner is. So it's interesting. And I tell these people, finally, you have really important skills. I may think that this is sort of the, the takeaway from what I want people to know today. You develop really important skills when you challenge yourself and you don't even know how important they are because other people aren't really clear about their successes and failures. They're always sort of posturing themselves as attractive or achievers. You know, when you start to work with people who are really high achievers, the good ones question themselves. So you mentioned earlier in your experience, at least in the past, a lot of climbers you knew were scientists or engineers. And I don't know if it's just because of where I'm located, but that has also been my experience. Hmm. And then not just climbing, also canyoneers and backpackers. Uh -huh. I have a lot of people that are friends of mine. They are engineers or they are scientist, or they're tangentially within those fields, right? To me, it makes sense. 
for the same thing we were talking about earlier where I was asking you or you when I was trying to assess, make an assessment about you, right? As a person that wants to understand the world and the people in it and the creatures in it, right? I feel like it's to a certain degree the same way. And that is part of what draws the scientists and the engineers. These are people who like to know why and how and placing themselves in these environments they're almost placing themselves inside a Petri dish where they are the experiment so that they can get that firsthand experience of why and how. All right. So what I would say about that is that since the last couple of decades, more women have become climbers. I suspect more women have become rock climbers than mountaineers. I don't really know. And so now I'm spending most of my time in the presence of women climbers because I volunteer at the American Alpine Club Climbers Grief Fund, which, you know, deserves to be mentioned because... It's an interesting idea that people could get psychological help for the things we don't like to talk about. The failures, accidents, fatalities in climbing where people disappear and leave a lot of other people traumatized, either because they were their climbing partners or their family members. And so the Climbers Grief Fund is a way to get a grant to get therapy in outdoor related trauma situations. You don't have to be the climber. You could be just affiliated with it and you don't have to be a member of the club either. And they give you some money and get some therapy. And the volunteers like myself make ourselves available for counseling people. So now I'm in the presence of a bunch of climbers who are therapists. And no surprise, they're almost all women because women, for some reason, tended to be therapists. I mean, maybe you could use the stereotype that they were more emotionally available. I don't know, whatever. They still are more women therapists, even outside the climbing community. It's a slightly different take. So you were saying, oh, yes, these are people who want to understand and they're they're rational and they're organized and they're engineers. But psychology is a little different. It pretends to be rational, but it's bullshit. It's it's intuitive. (laughs) No, it really is. The science glosses. So I'm a scientist and I say, come on, give me a break. You know, these people don't even know statistics and they don't. They have to hire statisticians to finish their papers. And it's intuitive. And, you know, you look at the history of it and there's Freud and Jung and Maslow and it's like all over the map. And they're the feel good people and the, the encounter people and the somatic. There's no theory here. It's intuitive. And the best practitioners are intuitive, really intuitive. I mean, impressively intuitive. There are some videos of some of these great therapists and they're amazingly effective. And they're clearly not following a script or or a method. They're responding immediately. It's like they're inside a dream, inside somebody else's dream, and they know what to do. There is a different type, I I suspect. I don't really, I'm interested to know. And you know, the truth is that I think you could probably appreciate that even though you and I are curious about how people work and what makes things tick, there isn't a formula. I haven't found a formula. Have you found a formula? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think there. I don't think there is going to be a formula. Or if there is, it's going to be so complex that we're we're not going to be able to use that formula. I mean, you are the you are the professional psychologist here. So if you were telling me there is no formula, no, it's very unlikely I will have found it and you have not. So I have one guy. He's a climber. He's an investment banker, and he has problems with the mindset of the people around him. It's not particularly collegial. It's not a team. I mean, there are teams, but there are many teams playing against each other. And then he's got personal relationships that are always sort of a wild card. And I have another client who's afraid to go out in the sunlight because she thinks it's going to dissolve her and she can only go outdoors in the nighttime. But I mean, she's very rational about it. She says, you know, I, I, I think the sun will dissolve me. I mean, you could say maybe that's 
Not true, but take it at face value. She can be very rational too. She hasn't tested this, right? So she could be correct. She has tested it. She goes out in the sunlight and she freaks out. Okay. You know? So it does not dissolve her. It just freaks her out. Well, it dissolves her integrity, her sense of right. being. So there is a truth to it. And, and so you've got to say, okay, you and I immediately think, oh, dissolve. It means like wicked witch to the West got water thrown over and he turned into liquid. No, but for her, it means lose the ability to control yourself. Right. It's like an emotional dissolution. Yeah. It's, and so, yeah. yeah, that's that's a reality. I can, I can appreciate that. What I was trying to say is there's no formula. The equations are different. I mean, there may be a formula, but everybody's got a different one. They're exploring them, hopefully. But then a lot of people don't come for counseling or don't look for it. They feel it's like a weakness and they pretend that they know what's going on and they don't. You mentioned reality. I think probably in this field, especially reality is whatever people interpret it to be. Everyone's reality is going to be separate, right? And you've got to work with their concept of reality. Oh, which field are you talking concept about? Of reality. Climbers or psychology? Uh, it's, it's, I mean, maybe everything, but definitely within the psychology, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the point. There are people who don't question. They don't look for help and maybe they don't need help right away. And I think it's really important because it's those people, uh, this is my hypothesis, it's those people, which is most of us, who then get sick, right? You somatize your problem because you don't see any way in your worldview to approach it. So a climber, at least in my view, will say, my frontier is out there and I'm going to project my need to prevail and excel on the mountains or the cliffs or the sport. But people who are well-adjusted, everything's supposed to be working. They have their money, they have their job, they have their family, they have their mortgage, and now they don't feel like things are working. So what happens? Well, it builds up to a point where they get shingles or they get some other physical thing or they get hypertension or some chronic disease. I mean, you could say I'm being a little ridiculous. You know, there are real mechanical origins to disease, but it's not that clear because our body is built to cope with those. So why do we fail? Why do some people fail and get cancer and other people don't fail and prevail and survive? So you can talk to cancer survivors. Some of them will say, well, I got, you know, medical help. And others will say, you know, I use the power of my mind. So that's when I started to do hypnosis and hypnotherapy and psychedelics saying, you know, to take this whole thing to the next level. So we talked about free soloing and how you have to use your mind. And if your mind's not in the right place, you put yourself in danger. And to a lesser degree, it's all climbing. You have to focus on the climb and the crux keep your level head and prevail or progress or fail, whatever. You know, like I say, it's fun to fail if it's not dangerous. But I love falling. I love jumping out of airplanes. I love getting swept away. Swept away in this sense, right? Kind of being putting yourself in a situation where the situation will decide what's going to happen and you're not necessarily aware of it. And you, f you go along for the ride to find out what that situation is, but then also how you cope with it. Isn't that why people like to whitewater kayaking? It's like, for sure, for what, sure. What's, yeah. around, what's or, around the next corner? Mm -hmm. What's ahead? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And in the process, I'm also going to find out a little bit about myself by seeing how I handle it. I would like to think that, you know, having romantic relationships was as much fun as doing whitewater kayaking. But it seems like in romantic relationships, it's always like there's a waterfall around the next corner. It, it always exceeds, at least in my experience, exceeds my ability to cope. And so I crash just like the airplanes. And I know in the airplanes, if I spent more time, I wouldn't crash so much. My approach to relationships, romantic relationships, is stepping back and saying, I'm now gonna raise my standards. I used to get involved with people just because it was fun. And then, you know, the shit would hit the fan and I would be upset because I would at that point have gotten 
committed or involved or dependent. And I don't like being committed and involved and dependent and then having the whole thing fall apart. It would be like going on a climb and then have everything fuck up. Uh, I mean, I did that once or twice and I don't like that. Don't do it again. So, you know, now it's kind of nice that as a therapist, I can listen to other people's problems and I can sort of do some backseat driving and haranguing them. I mean, I'm good at new ideas and they appreciate it. And I do learn, you know, like that, that woman who was afraid that the sun would dissolve her. At first, it seems ridiculous. But after you work with her, you say, oh, I understand. It's a panic attack. So uh, it's an interesting other frontier to go into empathy instead of strategy. So there is, you know, like the whitewater kayaking analogy, if you empathize with people and you really get in their heads and you really follow where they're going, it can be as exciting as uh, an athletic experience. And it takes it out of me. It definitely does. I mean, I'm wasted after I spend an hour with somebody, especially if they're, you know, full of piss and vinegar and take me all over the map. Well, right. You're going along on that ride. They're taking you somewhere. You don't know where you're going to go. And then you've got to find out how you're going to cope with it, but then also hopefully help them cope with it. Right. But you really have to be involved at the point. You can't just mm-hmm. like sit there and say, well, according to somebody or others theory, this is what you should. That, <laughs> right. That's like doesn't help anybody. And it, it's kind of phony. Turn to page 34 in the textbook. And yeah, yeah and this will solve your problem. But right? you know, that's that how it's exist. taught. That's how all these things are taught because they have to be taught. There has to be a textbook with a page 34. You know, maybe there doesn't have to be. I mean, I hate school. I hate, <laughs> I hate, I hate teachers. I used to sort of be circumspect. I say, well, you know, teacher, there's things you can. Now I just say, fuck them. I don't like teachers. If you think you're going to teach somebody what they need to know, you're wrong. Everybody's got to find out for themselves. And hopefully you don't kill yourself in doing it. It's very important to know how to open your own doors. I mean, climbers do this. They open their own doors. They get themselves in situations. And I tell people in learning and education, most people don't listen to me, that you've got to find your own mentors. And this is why I wrote that book, you know, because these were expeditionary learners. You know, the guy who, who was a graffiti artist grew up in poverty and his mentors were, you know, it's like uh, Oliver Twist. His mentors were uh, thieves and scoundrels. Some of them were good, good people. You ask your own questions, you find your own answers. You don't go to page 34 in the textbook. You get out of the textbook. And I should talk, right? Because I went through graduate school. I did the whole thing and it didn't get better. As time went on, it just got worse. And so now, you know, 40 years later, I'm starting to realize that not only do I ignore what was on page 34, I throw the whole textbook out. I mean, I don't really, I know these people, I read their books, but I see that they're not going to the answer and they're avoiding the answer. So it's like, you know, you've, As a climber, getting back to that, it's in your nature to come to conclusions. I would say that that's a way to define climbing. They have these summits and we get to them. Summits, the end of the route, the end of the weekend, and we get there. Unlike most people who just continue on the path, which maybe never leads to the top of whatever that path is, we tend to conclude things or at least look for conclusions. And that makes us really pretty special. We may not be right, But we have a level of commitment and focus that I think is really important and could be applied anywhere and should be applied much more broadly. People don't really encourage us as a group to be leaders. Instead, we're led by these clowns who are politicians and who don't really have goals unless they're, you know, tyrants, maybe. I don't know. So I I encourage people like your problem is your solution. You can't fail if you define failure as learning. 
And in fact, you should never be satisfied with learning. You should always go into the next one. It's ambiguous, you know. I stopped climbing because I didn't want to keep getting into things of higher risk. And I took up learning where I felt I could continue to go to new horizons without putting myself at great risk. But that's kind of a fraud, you know, because when you change professions, you are at risk. The funny thing is, as you get older and you learn more, then nobody wants to hear what you have to say because because you have your own idea about everything. I know you said that climbers are coming to you for therapy. Are they coming to you for climber-related therapy, or is it just that they happen to be climbers and they know you are a climber, so they want to have you as a general therapist? It's a little in between those two because their attitude toward climbing is part of their life. It's not a separate thing for these people. I mean, it could be for some people, but not for the people I work with. And I don't think for most people, because climbing demands your attention, unlike bingo or curling. Oh, man, I hope you're not going to piss off the bingo, the bingo people. Or the, the, or the curling people. Um, <laughs> but, you know, or, or all the spectator sports where you're only there for, you know, the hour. These people are commit or have a level of commitment and involvement that's more than spectator. So it means something to them, and I can use it metaphorically or dramatically. So my uh, investment banker client, I say, you know, go climbing, I tell him. You know, put some more time out for that part of your life. You know, don't get so embroiled in the endless maze of professional advancement. This is actually his problem. One of his problems or his main problem recently was what future path should he take? Should he take a path toward more independence or more reward? And I basically felt myself pushed into the position where I had to tell him. And what what the fuck do I know, right? It's his life. Mm-hmm. But I, I tell people, well, I'm paid to open my mouth and stick my foot in it. So I said, look, do what is meaningful for you. Don't do just what continues to get you rewards, because that's what got you in this ambivalent position to begin with. So now you should turn away from material rewards and turn toward meaningful rewards. And maybe that means independence and autonomy and a lower pay grade and more personal involvement and less of a formula. It will address the things that you came to me to address, which was meaning and value, real value. Do more climbing, you know, and think about it on a climb. I mean, maybe that seems contrived. Uh, (laughs) Another example was I, I have a client who's disabled and a climber. Disability was always part of his personality or his image of himself, physically disabled. And so then climbing as a disabled person became a, a symbol of his reinvigoration, right? Now he's doing something that most physically able people don't even do. You know, rock climbing is a person who's not got the function of all his limbs. And so it's a rich um, parallel. It's not just, you know, bingo or curling. I mean, okay, you can do bingo and curling and people watch movies and they have entertainment and okay, but we're talking about a different level of commitment and engagement. I mean, if you do bingo, like your life depends on it, maybe that's called Russian roulette. Then you would have a different attitude. But most people- I think think that's gambling, right? It's bingo where where financially your future depends on the- And I think that's why people do get become gambling addicts. Oh, for sure. So the question is, how do you turn that into a val- something that's valuable instead of just a liability? So are you insinuating that something like climbing while physically gambling might be more valuable than gambling in a casino? 
in the long run? I'm not sure. It depends, right? Like if you're just right. a high risk climber and you don't pay attention, one of my climbing partners is just a funny thing. He was leading and he got up to the belay and then the rope fell off because he hadn't tied the knot right, <laughs> which meant the whole lead was a joke, right? Right. Because it never yeah. would have caught him. And then he says, you think, well, you know, some people like that, maybe they're asking for trouble. They're like the gambler who doesn't really look at the odds. The one who's putting his mortgage and everything yeah. on the table. Right. Well, so it could be, you know, I, I gamble in the stock market all the time and I'm a mostly lose, but I, I'm not satisfied with that. I, I should stop. And I sort of do sometimes, but it's still curious. It's the same question. Like, how come it works sometimes? What is driving these things? And they're interesting questions. And I tell myself, maybe I don't need to make a profit. I'm not doing it for entertainment. I'm doing it for learning. And maybe I'm not learning enough. Well, okay. At some point you say, well, this risk is too much. I'm putting my family at risk and I shouldn't do it, but I'm still interested. So, it, you know, it depends. You could, you could use anything as a learning experience if it was progressive. I mean, if it's repetitive, you, know, you got to start questioning. If it's really, if you're just like stupid or stuck or addicted in some right. negative way. Right. I mean, we, I think we see this in relationships often we continue to pursue what attracts us without paying attention to the risk. So now at my age, I'm very discerning. I won't get involved with people who waste my time. As the result, the result of that is that I'm a hermit. The only people, <laughs> the only people that give me meaningful relationships are my clients. And that's okay. So here is a, here is a question for you. So you are, are a psychologist that has clients that come to you for therapy. You are a therapist. You see the value of therapy. Do you have your own therapist? No, I wouldn't trust anyone. <laughs> I wouldn't, literally. I've never met a therapist that trust. Only these dead people who I read about, they seem cool. So then how do you justify yourself as a therapist for other people? I don't have to. They justify it for me. They say, thank you very much. It's been very helpful. And then they pay me money. All right. Well, so, so basically it comes down to, are they getting something out of it? And yeah. you personally would don't think you would get something out of of a therapist they are my therapist ah, it's a and there, there we relationship go. that's where that's where it really lands right yeah well this is what i'm saying i i put myself in their world and i see their confusion i do a little better at it because i'm not quite as traumatized as they are i'm also not committed to their life it is confusing but i also find it very amusing and invigorating to talk, you know, to spend a week and talk to a dozen people, each in their own crisis. You know, they say as a therapist, you have to accept everyone. I don't accept everyone, but I love most of these people. I think they're really great people. I really appreciate what they're doing. And if I don't, I tell them so, and then they leave and they're angry. And that's the end. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. You know, it's called truth. Well, I'm sure that's much better than just stringing them along so I, that you could continue to have that paycheck and not actually helping anyone in I the end. I would feel right? bad. Right. I mean, yeah. I do have to question. It's, it's a funny line. You know, it's like walking a, a slack rope. I want to get as much money as I can. I have to feel value. If as I raise my prices, I have to feel I'm giving them value I, for myself. I mean, they'll make their own decision, of course. As I raise my price, I find I raise my sense of value. If I didn't, I wouldn't feel good about it. And that drives me forward. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, the desire to climb at a harder grade. I wouldn't want to devote myself to every client for $50 an hour and then feel exhausted for the rest of the day. I wouldn't make a living and I wouldn't be respecting myself. But what am I worth? You know, some people may have problems I can't solve. I should not charge them a lot of money 
and waste their resource and not do anything for either of us. You know, so this is what drives me. I really want to find out what's ticking, what's making things tick. I want to diffuse the bomb or open the door or find some revelation. And then uh, I'll both feel good about charging them and I'll feel good about myself as having learned something. And that's my therapy. How do you know when you're done? Yeah, I don't know when I'm done. They leave. They just they just eventually decide for you? Yeah, I mean, a couple of people have just like risen to such stratospheric levels of enlightenment that I, I say, I, I have nothing else to tell you. You're just in a constant <laughs> state of bliss and perfection. And you laugh, but it's, it's, it's impressive when people get to that level. I don't know if it's permanent. I don't really think it's like, I'm not simply the drug. They just... They just have solved their problem. And and then there's nothing more for me to do. They don't have a problem anymore. You mentioned it earlier. You mentioned the grief fund. And we, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but it seems like this is probably a topic that's important enough that we should spend a little more time on it. Tell us more about what the grief fund is and what your involvement is with that. I think there is an area of psychology called grief and bereavement. And there are some, if not formulas, at least typical problems that people confront when having part of their life amputated emotionally. I wonder, and I've expressed this to my colleagues, if climbers have their own attitudes toward grief, because we've got that sort of, oh, well, he died doing what he loved attitude, which often comes up. But that's not usually the attitude of the family members who really didn't know what it was all about anyhow, and were dependent on people for their family roles. Uh, Certainly, if you're a parent or a child of a climber who dies, it's not going to be a simple formula of uh, you paid your money, you took your risks, and you got the results. It's not going to be like that. So the Climbers Grief Fund, and again, you know, this, this is sponsored by women who have a different attitude from the men I grew up climbing with in the 70s and 80s. And I think that's healthy. They're more emotional, perhaps, maybe more family-oriented, I'm not sure, maybe more personally involved. And so it's come into the Alpine Club, which is, you know, one of these cigar-smoking white male parlor organizations. It's a little odd. Freemasons of the mountains. Yeah, it's like (laughs) you wouldn't think that the Alpine Club would have a climber's grief fund. You'd think it would be part of the sort of community support network. So there it is. So they put some money into it every year, and then they give out these grants of about roughly $600 each until they run out of money for the year and then they stop until the next year rolls around. And people submit, I don't know what it's called, for a grant because they have a grief-related problem or climbing accident-related problem. And sometimes it doesn't come out as grief. It comes out as anxiety or, I don't know, whatever a death could generate. Could be your partner, uh, could be your you know, climbing partner could be your family partner, you know, your father or your son. And so I guess you're approaching person's attachment. And I'm not I'm not sure I'm good at this because I have kind of that old school stiff upper lip mentality when it comes to death. You know, are you living your life well? Did you do what was meaningful for you? Did you die in pursuit of, you know, a higher goal? I think it comes down to, well, this is my impression, grief comes down to regret that you missed an opportunity or you didn't fulfill either the contract or the obligation. You fell short or they fell short and now death has terminated your opportunity. 
and you're still in need and you're still connected. And now it's like you've got, something's been severed or amputated and you may feel a combination of sadness and distress. And then a lot of things that depression generates like remorse and lack of motivation and general dark feelings. So then, you know, what am I to do? The answer is the same as what any therapist is supposed to do. You have to figure it out. You have to listen. And in many cases, that's all you need to do. You just need to be there and let somebody explore the territory safely, which has not felt safe to them, and support them. And as in most therapy, the person you're working with finds the answer to their problem. You know, like I say, I open my mouth and stick my foot in it. And that's meant to be kind of amusing, even when it's annoying to my client or challenging. I don't tend to be all that supportive. I'm not kind of a fuzzy, warm, feel-good kind of guy. I kind of want you to get back on the horse and, you know, go back into the crux and try to get past it. I mean, like I say, in my own life, success is not the goal. It's just movement. Success is just what you think happens when you get past the problem. That's success lies on the other side. But it's always kind of a, a fantasy pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So I'm not sure how to deal with grief. And I think maybe I'm not the right person for many grieving people. Because I would say, I don't really believe this, but I, I would say perhaps the person who died was doing something important. Maybe they weren't foolish. Maybe they had done their homework. And maybe it was an unlucky accident. That's hard to say because in climbing, like I say, most of my climbing partners who died could have been safer. So that's, you know, I don't know what to say beyond that. You deal with a person's issue. If you have distress and it's climbing related, there's probably something that can be done that's helpful. And maybe it's the Climbers Grief Fund or maybe it's some other support framework or network. Or The therapy shouldn't be considered just for sick people. It should be considered more like coaching in the positive way. Coaching like in athletic coaching. Somebody's there to put you back, focus you on what you need to do. If you're a slalom skier, the coach helps you disentangle your performance. It's not a question of fixing you because you're broken or disabled or dysfunctional. It's making you better and it should be worth something. Well, of course, if it's done badly, it's not worth much, but you, you have to have some discretion on your own part as a client. You have to hold your counselor to a standard. You can't just accept whatever they do as a treatment, you know, like allopathic medicine, go to the doctor and bend over and receive whatever they give you. You have to be in control, which is perhaps not what a lot of people want to do. But that's the sort of territory. A good therapist, I think, doesn't try to solve your problem. They just try to clarify your environment for you to make your decisions right. more clear. You're kind of there to help lead them so that they can find the solution to their problem, right? Because you don't, you're not them. You can't know the answer for them. Can't know. But here's another important thing. There isn't often no one answer. There's a lot of different answers. Right. And you may have to put them all together like a big collage. And so the problem may not be, what's the answer? It may be, what are the other questions? You know, what are you not looking at? You know, this, this is what I say. People get diseased because they're not focusing on what's causing them anxiety. You know, just like you don't just solve the problem by giving them more money or building a bigger fence or sending the kid to college. You find out what is really bothering you. And that involves a sort of intrusive prying into areas that maybe you didn't want to go into. Like, why do you need this help? And as humans, we're pretty good at hiding 
our problems from ourselves, aren't we? Well, let's go, you know, it's protection. We, we, we build these membranes right. and, and, and walls around us for the reasonable reason of protecting. And that's what a, a therapist is supposed to make you feel, I think, that you can go outside the boundary that you've created and explore further and grow further. And you may have trouble because you built yourself into a box and the people around you don't want you to go further. You may have grief, partly because the people around you have grief, and they don't want you to feel better. Everyone wants to grieve, you know. Misery loves company. So now you say, I'm not sorry, I'm not sad anymore. Maybe other people might not support you in that. Or, you know, I don't want I don't want a lawn anymore. That's typical. I'm gonna let my front my front lawn go to seed. You know, then what are your neighbors gonna say or your family gonna say? You're kind of bringing up something that I, I would imagine you would have to deal with a bit with grieving, and I think maybe less so now than say 200 years ago, but to a certain degree, there's a number of social mores when it comes to grieving. There are obligations. People feel like they're supposed to feel a certain way or they're supposed to act a certain way. Those are things you probably have to deal with when you're working with the grief fund and people who come to you, right? Always, always. People who want to say, why am I not crying enough? Or why don't I feel worse? Or, you know, anything along those lines. Yeah. If they're not asking, then they're not even coming to you. So there's got to be mm-hmm. some question. But yeah, so dealing with grief, I guess, to a certain degree, what I'm asking is is not even just so much dealing with grief, but dealing with your social obligations of how you think you are supposed to be properly grieving. And so I feel like you probably have to deal with both of those things, letting them let go the fact that they grieve the way they need to grieve, and then also allowing them to do that. Is there anything there or am I just taking us in some weird direction? The whole thing is a weird direction. (laughs) I I think this is true that If you are in touch with your own mortality, you're better able to deal with other people's. And then a lot of the distress, I'm not sure if this is true, but it feels somewhat true, that the distress that other people have is a reflection of their own ambivalence, their own discomfort with their own mortality. So more, you know, climbing can, not always, but it can settle you in terms of your mortality. I don't know, it settled me. I mean, certainly those free soloing things really settled me. I mean, like, holy shit, I could have, you know, tanked right there and that would have been the end of it. And I asked myself this, maybe I really shouldn't have done that. I'm not sure it's such a good idea to free solo. In fact, I think it's probably a bad idea in most cases. Unless you're really free of obligation, you shouldn't put other people at risk because you've decided you're going to shoot for the moon. There are other people who depend on you, especially if they're your kids. It's also, it's like in relationships, I have the unusual belief, I almost feel Catholic about it. It's like you shouldn't divorce yourself from a committed relationship. You should really try to learn the most from everything you get involved with, or else don't get involved with it, you know, but don't get other people dependent on you if you're not going to be dependable. Right. So, I mean, you know, what does that mean? I've had two failed relationships and I have two kids with two different women and it bothers me and I try to remain in touch and positive relationship with both these people, but neither of them are giving me the relationship I was looking for, which may be idiosyncratic to me, you know, and my whatever needs were. But I have these kids and I committed myself to playing a positive role in their lives. And it's really important that I do that to me and to them. So I'm not going to say, okay, uh, burn that bridge. Let's go on, you know, and people do that. People burn bridges all the time. And, you know, they come to me. It's like, my parents are fucked up. Almost everybody's parents are fucked up, it seems. 
And what that means is that they don't want to deal with your problems anymore as your as their children. That's what I call fuck them because they're not out of your life and they're it gets more and more complicated to the point where I don't know what to say. I encourage people to keep trying. It's like it's like somebody who tries to climb a, a crux and falls off and falls off and falls off. What are you going to do? Say give up? No, we say as long as your fingers aren't bleeding, try it again. Try it a different way. I mean, why not? Is this called fun? I don't know. Are we having fun yet on our fifth failed romantic relationship? Some of the most funny situations I've been in have been life-threatening. I have just laughed my ass off when I was being chased down the slope by an avalanche. I was hysterical. It was the funniest thing in the world. Or when my partner was like freaking out because he was ice climbing and he didn't have protection. He was 20 feet out. You know, I, I couldn't stop laughing. It seems crazy. But there, there's something about humor that unlocks potential. I, I I must be sounding crazy at this point. No, it's the it's the kind of the recognition of the ridiculousness of the scenario, and the the only way we seem to know how to deal with that is either laughter, which allows us to continue to face it, or shutting down and panicking, and then being completely incapable of facing it. Right? It seems like that. Yeah. I, I, that's at least been my experience. When I'm able to laugh in situations where it seems like I shouldn't be laughing. I'm still able to move forward. But if I were to just get too much in my head and recognize the seriousness of the situation, it might shut me down and I might not be able to handle it at all. So when I was falling off Mount Robeson, I didn't think to laugh. I just watched. When I was being chased by that avalanche, I did laugh. And then it buried me. But I'm glad I laughed because what else was I going to do? Cry? Scream? Really, the only thing I could do was run. <laughs> As it happened, I didn't quite run in the right direction, but who would know? Hey, at least you picked a direction. Uh, at least right? I did, right. I picked myself <laughs> up and got that fuck out of there. Yeah, better to be proactive. Well, I probably, I mean, I, pro- <laughs> I might have survived because I ran. If I didn't run, it might have buried me. You know, and I would like to tell people, I mean, we were talking about grief. How do you laugh? Well, maybe laughter is a little more than most people could muster. Can you laugh at somebody's death? I don't. You know, I've been in the presence of my both parents who died. I have not been in the presence of a climber who's died. These people I knew died, but they didn't die with me. I don't think I could laugh. I can't really imagine it being appropriate. Well, but it wasn't appropriate in my own case either. You know, being buried by an avalanche, I don't think laughter was the thing. But I think I think people do find ways to laugh in grief because... Do they? Yeah, this is, this is what people do, right? They start telling stories about that person's life no, that that's true. are funny. That's true. That happens... Every time yes. I've ever been to any sort of that's right. funeral or wake or anything you're like right. that. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. We find a way to find That is. Humor. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe you, maybe you got the answer. Thanks. <laughs> maybe if you're looking for somebody else on the on the uh, Grief Fund, American Alpine Club, uh, I'll give you my, my email. Um, yeah. I, I don't think they need me on the Grief Fund. We are reaching that point where you and I are going to need to wrap this up. And we should talk about how people can get a hold of you if people. So, so here's what I see. It sounds to me like if people wanted to come to you for therapy, they're not going to get a person who's going to use a bunch of therapy speak and be overly cautious about what they say to them and baby talk to them. If they're looking for a therapist who's going to be more upfront with them. And I feel like you're probably that guy. Am I correct about that? Yeah, I'm a. Truth bomber. <laughs> so if people are looking for a truth bomber instead of somebody who's going to use a bunch of buzzwords and, and treat them like they're walking on eggshells, how do, how do people 
get in touch with you? How do they how do they get you to either be a therapist or, or whatever else you might do for them? Well, I have this website at mindstrengthbalance.com. So the website is the portal to me and all this, you know, I've got this splinter of everything from games to books to podcasts and uh, a blog. And I got a lot of free hypnosis MP3 files. We didn't talk about hypnosis, but this is all state of mind stuff. So that's mindstrengthbalance.com. So you're saying there is a repository of valuable things there for them, yeah. even outside of reaching out for therapy. Yeah. And then there's also the Climbers Grief Fund, which is, I don't know what the uh, website for the American Alpine Club is, but it's probably aac.com. I can find out and make sure it's included. Yeah. In the show and and so, you know, that, that has it. resources and some interesting stuff. I mean, I, I don't really know. I'm not on the marketing end of it. I'm on the service end. And so there are people all over the country. And I encourage people to go to my website and sign up for my blog. And it's free for monthly, you know, posts. So the thing I do at the end of the show, and I don't know if you ended up listening to any episodes. And so maybe, you know, this is coming. Maybe you don't. I don't. All right. Well, good. This could be a big surprise for you. Uh, What I always do at the end of the show is ask the person if there's a final thought they want to leave everyone with before they go. Yeah, well, I think that if we're talking to climbers or, yeah, I would talk to climbers and say, you have a lot more potential than you're using. We talk about what, where did climbing come from? Where is it going? Originally, it was kind of this engineering idea of uh, solitary confrontation to nature, even somewhat poetic, you know, Emerson Thoreau type thing. And then it became somewhat competitive with uh, climbing gyms and climbing walls and climbing contests. And, you know, and we live in a world that's full of dysfunctional people or semi-functional people. And I don't think climbers ever have been fully made aware of how valuable the skill is that you learn. It's not really about climbing. It's about managing your headspace and being strong, focused, and able to whatever your degree is. So, you know, if you have only one leg or if you're a super athlete, you're still going to come up to your limit and have to deal with it. It doesn't matter where your limit is. You could climb 5'6", or you could climb 5'14". You know, I, 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 it bothers me the focus on difficulty because it's not important. It's, it's everyone's experience that makes you a better person. And I think the world needs us. Just looking at the way women have gotten involved with climbing and made it a more expansive thing, and that's been important. And then, you know, now we're talking about the environment and global politics. And it's important to know risk and return and uh, commitment and your role in things. So I just encourage climbers to, I don't know, I guess you could say get therapy or whatever it takes to take your game to a whole higher level. Social, familial, personal, spiritual. That's my message. All right. Well, I want to thank you for sitting down and being my guinea pig since uh, this is the first time. I've used this remote recording, so hopefully everything has worked out well. Uh, Yeah, and thanks for sitting down and talking with me. That's great. Thanks, Jason.
So Lincoln is offering all listeners the opportunity to get a free EPUB version of his most recent book, Sensations, Thoughts, and Emotions. And if that interests you, all you need to do is go to mindstrengthbalance.com and click on the subscribe area, or you can check our show notes. There will be a link there to take you directly to the subscription area. And if you subscribe to his free blog, this will not cost you anything. If you subscribe to his free blog after sign up, he will get back in touch with you with an email and send you a link to that free ebook, Sensations, Thoughts, and Emotions. And now we've reached the time of the show where I want to invite you all to go to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this, episode 114 with Lincoln Stoller. And there you'll find some photographs and links to everything we talked about in today's show, including the link to sign up for his blog and get that free ebook. And while you're there on the internet, if you're just itching to get in touch with us here at the show, you can do that a number of ways. Email us, jason at gogetoutside.com. Or send us a text or leave a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And as always, if you would like to do me a favor, please go to your podcast purveyor of choice. Make sure you are subscribed and please rate and review the show. But most importantly, please share it with someone who you think will enjoy it. Next time on the show, come back March 16th for Liz Del Sol. We are going to talk about everything from shark diving to skydiving to cycle touring and her life as a performing magician. March 16th, Liz Del Sol. See you then. <laughs>